Thank you.
Uh, we are here with drummer, band leader, composer, educator, the incredible Billy Cobham. He's leading his Crosswinds project here at Jazz Alley. Yeah. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about your uh, history in jazz. Sure. I, I know you're from a Panamanian family who uh, came to the States in, yes. when you were just about three years old. Yeah. Do you feel older. like your Panamanian roots, I mean, it's a musical family. Do you feel like your Panamanian roots are still part of your style? Uh, of course. And Afro-Latin roots, uh, yeah, in Fully in, in, encouraging everything I do. No problem, yeah. And you were really lucky to be able to grow up in New York in the 60s, kind of the center of the jazz universe as things were really changing. Do you remember being a teenager growing up in, in New York City? Yes, and having to go to the School of Performing Arts uh, <laughs> every day, five days a week, uh, at least a minimum, on the average, a two-hour trip from from what is known as Kennedy Airport in that, or Far Rockaway. Mm-hmm. Oldham Park, and it took about two hours to get there by the E train, the G train, <laughs> the D train, 
the BB and CC or whatever. It was, it was amazing. We had there were so many different trains they had to take to get from Ozone Park uh, from 100 uh, from Suffolk Boulevard in 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 uh, Queens to 135th Street and Convent Avenue in Harlem. It uh, was a became an everyday kind of normal thing for kids. I guess sounds like you were pretty committed to your education. Oh, not to mention climbing up the stairs 200 meters to the school on the City <laughs> College campus. With that building still exists, and it was some of the most wonderful years of my life. I had to share them with uh, some very great, great artists today. Um, going all the way back to, wow, uh, who? Um, Jimmy Owens, uh, Eddie Gomez, Richard T., um, who else went to school there? Larry Willis at my time. Um, Janice Ian. Um, Laura Nero. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> and it, oh, even the guy that um, hanging out in those days with us, oh, Bobby Columbi uh, was hanging out at school there. Uh, Lou Soloff was hanging out at school there. Um, man. And I lose. Oh, Fred Lipschitz. It's most of the, many of the guys that was in the original Broadway interiors went to school there. Right, Fred right. Taylor, Fred Lipschitz, of course. Again, I say, oh uh, boy. And uh, I get I start to lose <laughs> track of everybody. <laughs> we were right smack in the middle of, of of clubs. I mean, very close to clubs like Minton's, and uh, that gets everybody in trouble. You know, you don't. You, 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 it's very difficult to do your homework when you know that Monk is down the street and he's playing. Or to to or even more, when Monk happens to sashay past the school and walks into the school, into the auditorium, after school hours, I mean, we're still hanging at, school ended at 3 o'clock and we're hanging at 4, talking out front of the school about things that happened in school, and here comes Monk. And he just sort of glides in, and it's like the, the Pied Piper leading all the little lemmings, you know, and we all go inside, sit down, and he starts to play on piano. You know, I think it was Little Rudy Tootie or something Oof. like that. It was a crazy. And uh, then he went to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing that you were there around so many incredible jazz legends, but, yeah. of course, the 60s was a time of incredible cultural change uh, yeah. in our country and around the world. I mean, from 1960, uh, doing the twist with yes. uh, Chubby Checker to, you know, right. six, less than a decade later, right. the Beatles' Revolution Number 9. I mean, the, the world had changed. Do you sure. remember that cultural kind of upheaval? I remember watching all of this go by about a million miles a minute, you know, and going, so what is this all about? Hold on, you know. Wait, what's that? Gone. Okay, so let's, what, what's that? Maybe I can catch it on the way by. I missed a lot. I mean, just because uh, I left, I missed the depth of the, of the images that I, that I encountered, so to speak. And one kind of, I'm not sure if it was a roadblock in your career, but at 21, you were drafted into the Army. And I suppose in the late 60s, uh, it was good to be in, in the Army band, at least. But uh, what, what can you tell us about your Army days? Well, the big thing for me with the Army uh, was that they, they encouraged me, on the, under pain of a punch or whatever, to just be more disciplined in what I was doing, thinking, uh, how to kind of put together the visual images uh, to turn into 
ideas and thoughts. Mm. Uh, helped me through a lot of things in the current day. You know, being a, a kind of maverick of sorts, I tend to be happy that I had uh, drill sergeants and people like that who were kind of, they're, they're, you're seniors, they've been through a lot, and it's not to be taken lightly. And they weren't yelling at you for their health. You right. know, they were trying to get you to understand specific things about life in general. Mostly dealing with a, a very complicated part of life called common sense, you know. Um, just the things that you need to to know to get from one uh, b disc in the block of cement to the next on the walking, on the way, on the life of life, you know. And it's, it's like, wow, okay, you know, I need to take a step two step backs for every step I take forward to make sure that I'm going in the right direction. You know, mm -hmm. in other words, in those two steps, at least you should think it through to the point where you really are sure you want to do this. Knowing that more than likely you will do, you will make a mistake probably, but you'll be able to learn from it because you will have thought it out enough to understand that if I had gone in the other route, maybe I would have gotten what I wanted. And so, I mean, those are the things that you go, for, for me, that's when I went into the army about uh, primarily to learn how to 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 communicate better, uh, work with with other, my colleagues better, and so of course they put me in a position where I was able to teach a little bit at the Naval School of Music in in Norfolk uh, mm, right. and um, work with uh, Cecil Cecil Bridgewater, uh, Grover Washington, another one. Uh, People like this were around me and I around them. Uh, we got a lot done because, you know, we were health scout. Young guys didn't understand. But if you could sit down and write some things out. For me, at that time, it was just writing out drum parts. Mm. I wasn't composing at all. But I, was, I really needed to understand how so, key players like Buddy Rich, Louis Belson, how they composed mm. and, uh, from the drum set in real time not just solos, but how they, they made the exit from the ensemble into their presentation and how they made the entrance back into the ensemble after their presentation. Right. Things like this, without having to go, yeah, he did so and he did that, and mm, maybe I should check this book to see if, you know. This was all about real time uh, yelling and screaming and no, you idiot, you know, <laughs> do this, do that. And finally it starts to come through that it's not that difficult as it may appear, even though it, it it is very simple in terms of selection of notes and ideas and themes, to knit together a story hmm. through sound. Yeah. So it wasn't long after you got out of the army, you started getting work. Uh, some of your work was uh, in the studio doing session recordings. Uh, I imagine that would be another great way to learn and grow as a musician. Yeah, if you have the opportunity to do it, good luck. Yeah. You know, it it's not. It's not for everybody, and so therefore everyone doesn't get that opportunity right. because just about everybody wants it. <laughs> but if you don't have the, if you're not ready for it, if you're not a, an individual or personality that someone else who has to recommend you into that fraternity is willing to take a chance on, you're not going to go there. Yeah. And that normally is the, Someone who's been there much longer than you that you look up to or, or and respect, you know, from a distance more than anything else, 
they're not going to tell you that you sound good. <clears throat> they're going to ask you if you do sound good, if you're available to do something mm-hmm. on a specific day at a specific time. And that's when you know you have an opportunity that the door is a, like a slight crack open. Yeah. Because now they're taking a chance on you because it's not only you that loses if you, they lose too because people have confidence behind them in them. And so it, that's how that works. And that's a hard lesson to, to kind of teach a lot of people, which I'm happy for because many, a lot more people will be doing this and who knows what would have happened. Maybe I would never have had a chance. You got a big break um, as at the very beginning of the next decade. I think it was January 1970. You're recording with Miles Davis. Yeah, that was a big one, and and I and I respect that with all my heart. But the first recording on a very professional level that I ever did was with Hubert Laws and Ron Carter and Roland Hanna, Jimmy Owens, on a Hubert Laws album for Creed Taylor, who had just started a recording uh, label called CTI. Right. But it was that record, if I'm not mistaken, I can't remember the name of it. It was very early. It was it was in the '60s, '69, somewhere in there, or even '68. Late. I got out of the military in '68. I was on the road with Horace Silver, and I did a lot of work that way, um, where we were we were always involved with. I was working with a band called the New York Jazz Sextet, which included Roland Hanna, Ron Carter, Jimmy Owens, or or Thad Jones on mm. trumpet. Um, who am I missing? Tom McIntosh um, and Hubert Laws. So we we did a lot of stuff together, uh, and we learned tremendous amount of information. Uh, I I learned a lot from from them. Again, they were my drill sergeants, ah. you know, because they'd been around the block for many, 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 many years before me. Mm-hmm. And uh, proof was in the recordings that they made and what we studied from. And so when I did that record with those guys, it was, a, it was an important thing for me. Moving on from there, I then recorded um, with George Benson on Giblet Gravy. Giblet Gravy, was a, that was a, the next verve. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I made my my CTI recording with um, with uh, Kenny Burrell, uh, God bless the child. And then we started to move. Yeah. Then we started to go. Yeah. And I know with uh, Miles Davis, you met um, John McLaughlin, who's a, a a big uh, partner for your collaborator in jazz. And close. Yeah. I knew John in England, but I only met him there. Ah. Um. Interestingly enough, along with. In a, in a club called Ronnie Scott's in London, along with Art Blakey. I, I was, yeah, 1968. It was the last time, the last part of the tour, a George Ween tour that had, we had 45 shows in 60 days to do, mostly festivals. And at the end, we ended up hanging out at Ronnie's, listening to God knows whom. I think it was Chick Corea's band or something. <laughs> and in that band, might have been, or was it Tony's? It was, it was like I met McLaughlin there for the first time. I was there with Tony Oxley, great, great drummer from England. Um, Art Blakey, Elvin was there because we were, we were on tour together with Art and Art's band, Elvin's band, Max's band, um, and Horace Silver. And so, oh, and the Stars of Faith, I think was the name of the gospel 
group. And that was a that was an amazing 45 shows, man. <laughs> Outrageous. You're, the things that I learned from day to day. The first time I ever had a an out of body experience at at some point, you know, wow. working with with Horace, we played so well that uh, we played so much and so often that we got to know each other very well over a 10 month period. And it was capped by being on the road for that long with that band. And right. all these things pointed to the fact that, you know, when, when musicians have a chance to communicate with one another on stage that much, it's going to go to some, some other area. I mean, it becomes very much, uh, uh, a spatial kind of thing it's it's amazing you know it's it, it, it's and again it's very rare to get to that point anymore in in time and uh, with uh, your work with John McLaughlin who was playing uh, very much kind of a rock and roll guitar for the era um how was your drumming uh changing and evolving in that time John played more when when I met John he was playing straight ahead with with more and you know again again he was playing with Miles the transition was just being made. You know, oh, we, yeah. we came, for me, many people will disagree, but I, I think that the transition from jazz to rock and calling it fusion started in 1967 with a, a record called ESP. Mm. And from there with the Boogaloo thing and all, it just went into another world. And actually, John had just become part of that stuff. And so his playing was more, he chose the right notes, you know, and, 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 and the, the sound of the guitar was beautiful there. You know, it was, uh, it was well thought out uh, how that character would play its part in the music. You know, I, 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 it was, I was very ad, I mean, much an ad, admirer of, of what he did with Miles and, and how they tailored all of that stuff. All of the guys in, in the, in the studio that worked with him. And so I became not only a fan, but even more uh, an advocate of it being part of it after a while. Yeah. And how was your composing evolving? Were you starting to write more songs? And At that point in time, I just wanted to play in the band. You know, <laughs> I, I just wanted to contribute through my instrument. I only started to compose out of desperation to get some work because at some point in 1972 I knew that I was going to have to move on from the MO and so I, I I decided to uh start to learn to use my 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 two index fingers and and, and punch out notes like a learning how to type on a typewriter <laughs> and so I ended up with do 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 yeah that sounds good let me just put that down you know and one thing led to the other just based on the experiences that I've had with all those those people that I mentioned before who supported me, uh, all of a sudden things started to come together piece by piece, just like learning how to speak the language, except that the notes tend to have a lot more weight. You know, they tend to last a lot longer and they happen to be very, very sincere and true all the time as opposed to words. There you go. Uh, you got to make your first record the next year, 1973. Spectrum yeah. comes out, goes to number one. But that was really funny because I didn't even know. <laughs> uh, I was in the recording studio. I made that record. I thought, well, you know, if I get 10 pressings, I can give one to my mom and dad, and I'll give a couple to my cousins. And, you know, say, yeah, I made a record, and that's it. You know, 
but that'll help me to get maybe a, a weekend wedding or something like this and you know or we'll play a dance and you know, I'm, I'm thinking that that kind of play you know on the on the side and I'll work in the evenings or I'll go to I'll do studio work I'll do you know double your pleasure double 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 doing jingles which is what I would used to do mm. and then of course working with Creed anything around the town nowhere near thinking I'm what me no people I mean Gronick Don Gronick one day when we're in the studio he says you know man that's a really good record and I'm going what record <laughs> and I think we were Atlantic and we're doing a jingle for Kellogg's cornflakes or something and I go oh you mean the one we did over Creed with the uh, up at, 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 at Rudy's or uh, um uh who I mean Jackie and Roy is no no not Jackie and Roy yeah, but that's a good record but it wasn't no yours I only made one record man what are you, what are you talking about is my record what record my record you know it's like yeah your record did don't you even look at do you listen to the radio? No. Uh, why? I'm busy, man. I'm here with you. You know, like this. Uh, listen to the radio. Okay, okay. No more jokes. What are you talking about? I didn't. I didn't get it. You know. And then that's six months after the record came out. And I just know that I heard it was released, so I went up to the stu up to the record company and got ten records, yeah. and walked away and thought that well, that's that. You know. Yeah. And, and I just handed them out. Mission accomplished. <laughs> and I'm back to work. And all of this is happening, and I'm going, okay, what's the how? Then I get a phone call from the head of A&R, Mark Myerson. Where are you? I'm in New York. How long you been here? Oh, man, I've been on the road here a few weeks at least. And you didn't call me? Well, I didn't know. You never called me. I mean, I said, don't you listen to the written? Here we go again. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. That must have been a little bit of pressure to follow that up with Crosswinds. Uh, yeah, well, the the whole thing was that then the, then the ego kicked in. You know, it's like, mm. yeah, I can write, you know. Yeah. And I found out then after that that what I wrote on Crosswinds still wasn't finished. Hmm. And I started to, I realized that I didn't know how to enhance those those themes. I had no background. I had, I mean, I heard that and it came and where am I going to go with it? You know, okay, the heavy was that I wrote this one piece uh, while I was with Mahavishnu. It was a theme, and it's called Heather at the time. But And I did it because it, what, I was inspired, or in a way, by the, the events that happened in the Atomic Village just below the Atomic Dome. I was sitting in that park, next to a shadow that was a person that had, and, and it was true. And all of this is going through my head, and that's what I'm talking about with, with, uh, with music. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it tends to, you start to think of things, and all of a sudden it's da-da-da-da-da-da. Seeing all these kids uh, come out, go in the museum as little tykes of six years old. Can't be more just enough to be able to understand what they're going to see, but they're not told until they see it. And when they're going in smiling and they're coming out crying. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not talking about five or six. We're talking about hundreds of kids, a stream. And the whole idea is this is something you need to know now about the world. So you get inspired by that. Right. You know, um, what you do with it is, is, is purely up to you. But the fact that you have it even as an option is amazing, man, you know? And for me, 
it just stayed with me, this theme that I finally recorded on the second album with, you know, and George Duke knew exactly what to do with it. John Williams, you know, it, it was imperfect. And the heavy, the tenor player, the saxophonist is Michael Brecker. So that could have been Dexter. But I mean, it, what Michael played on it didn't just come from the heart. It was coming from a history of stuff. Yeah. And that was the first and only take we took. <laughs> he tried. We went back to the first take. Maybe 20, 30 times. By then, I was at Nathan's getting a hot dog. I mean, because none of that stuff made any sense anymore. But the first one did. Yeah. And we put that out there. The next thing I know, I still don't know who did it. I, maybe someday someone will tell me. On YouTube, when there was a tsunami in Sendai, oh, yeah. that was a background tune. <laughs> and I did not authorize that on YouTube. Okay. So you talk about, you know, uh, I forget the words right now for it, but it was a, a really special thing that happened. Just, you know, like, uh, I can't even say the words, I can't remember. But it, it, it was beyond tears and all that. It was so such an emotional experience. Beyond is really something else. Man. And here we are, uh, almost 50 years later, um, re revisiting uh, the Crosswinds project here at Jazz Alley. Yeah. Uh, what made that album uh, something that you wanted to come back to? Well, every 10 years, the record becomes, I mean, the, the, those songs re, re, regenerate themselves. Yeah. And uh, based on new experiences for me, with different individuals playing them, get different ideas. That's why, for me, again, music is, is kind of, not kind of, music is eternal. It reigns as a language, as a way to to express oneself in both ways. It goes both ways. The listener reacts to the player. And that's an important aspect because the player is then, then, then uh, given a reason to, to play more to the listener. It goes back and forth like this until the end of time. It's an endless loop. And there are young drummers out there following in your footsteps, but hugely influenced by your sound. I know you've been a, a drum teacher for years and years. Do you do you feel like a big influence in in, in music? No, I think it's a. I feel I feel like a a, a a the student of the art that shares ideas. Yeah, I mean it's here. You know you you can try it or not. You know if you like it, cool. You know, and if you don't, I'm I'm gone already. So it doesn't matter to me. You know, I'm gone. <laughs> But it was just something I saw along the way in my life. Yeah. yeah. Billy, this is wonderful. Thank you so much for, uh, for speaking with me. Thank you.